Welcome to the GB News Real Me podcast. I'm Gloria DiPiero. Now, we all have views on politics and politicians, but aside from the spin and the knockabout, who are they? What makes them tick? What's their life story? And why have they chosen a life in politics? That's what the Real Me podcast is all about. We hope you enjoy a very different type of political interview. My guest in this episode is Conservative MP for Blackpool South, Scott Benson. Elected in 2019, Scott previously worked as a parliamentary assistant to the MP Craig Whitaker, and for eight years served as a councillor in Yorkshire. During this time, Scott was deputy leader of the council and then leader of the Conservative group. Scott's victory in Blackpool South marked the first time since 1997 that the constituency had been represented by a Conservative. He studied theology for his undergraduate degree and went on to study it further for his Masters. I asked him whether faith is a big part of his life. Faith's a huge part of my life and it always has been. Um, I always thought at one stage, funnily enough, at university, I was going to become a, uh, an Anglican priest. Some of my friends still quote that back to me, the fact that I've got a calling of a different kind, obviously going into politics um, rather than the church. And I mean, in terms of my um, daily life and politics and the job, it certainly keeps me grounded. I think having the faith is good as a politician and more broadly because, again, not only installs an important set of values, um, but after a bad day, it sometimes puts everything into perspective. There is a bigger picture beyond the latest government headlines or the latest policy. So it's incredibly helpful um, to me. I love my degree at university as well. In my uh, master's, I specialise in the Old Testament. It's just still my favourite book to read. Uh, narrative of uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings is a part of Israel occupying the Holy Land. And some of those stories are absolutely fascinating. It's the best piece of literature which has ever been produced. There's something in there for all times, all seasons in life, and always something for good or for bad to reflect upon in the Bible. Do you go to church? Um, I do. I go to a variety of different churches. So this um, weekend, just going to went to two different churches in the constituency. I've got over 40 churches in the pack, so I tend to try and get around as many as I possibly can. Uh, I don't have a fixed church, I have to admit, but um, the services I enjoy mostly are what people could describe as the happy, clappy churches. And when I was in university in Nottingham, I went to a brilliant Pentecostal church where everybody gets off their, gets off their seats, cheering, clapping, loud music playing. It was almost like a nightclub. I've been to quieter nightclubs, believe it or not, than I have this um, Pentecostal church in Nottingham. And I think it's those types of churches which sometimes really install a bit of joy into people's lives, not diminishing the more traditional um, forms of worship. But um, I think for young people in a society which is becoming less and less religious, I think there's a reason why those churches are growing, particularly in places like Nottingham, Bristol, London. Some of the cities have a lot higher church going rate than more traditional parts of the country. And I would expect that trend to continue. But that, that's what I enjoy um, doing when I go to church. Do you pray every day? I do. I pray for not only um, sort of guidance in my own life, um, but also politically as well, especially when it comes to some key votes ahead, such as COVID legislation, number of different factors to weigh up. And I think seeking guidance uh, as far as sort of weighing up those different votes and thoughts and different opinions on either side. I do find that very, very helpful. 
Interesting. Uh, you're, you're gay. Um, tell me when you came out. Um, well, funnily enough, only just before I was married. So uh, my friends have known, close friends have known for a number of years, um, but I told my parents just before I got married, which was uh, last year. Wow. So I think it was a shock in some regards, but probably less so um, in, in other aspects. And they were very, very supportive. Uh, and I got married in November last year. So it was a classic uh, lockdown romance if you like, for want of a better thing, whilst obeying all COVID rules Indeed. and restrictions, <laughs> naturally, at various points over the last two years. And uh, yeah, we had a lovely ceremony in the House of Commons, um, which was uh, in November. And funnily enough, um, the Speaker imposed some rules about um, not being able to have outside events in Parliament at the beginning of November. And we we're very worried the ceremony wouldn't actually take place. So it was a bit of a last minute thing when we finally got the green light days ahead and everything fell into place. But uh, enjoying married life, it certainly adds a bit of uh, perspective um, because before then, before I was in a relationship, I used to probably spend 80 hours a week on the job. Every spare moment of the day was responding to emails and canvassing. So I think it does help to have a bit more of a well-rounded and view of, of life and obviously having a marriage and a partner's uh, part of that. I'm stunned that you only told your parents last last year um this this is not you, you talk, tell me whatever you want to tell me and if you tell me it's none of my business then that's <laughs> fine too because um it's not the point of um these interviews to make anybody feel uncomfortable about what they do and what they don't want to to say but what, what did you did you wrestle with coming out is that why you came out so so recently I think it's every person's different and people when they grow up gay or straight have different challenges in life. I think um, people from the LGBT background often have particular challenges um, when they're growing up, which sometimes the media and different people within society don't fully acknowledge or understand. Having a faith sometimes makes that equally hard to reconcile the two. Um, so I always said if I was in a position to commit to a long-term partner, obviously I would make sure of the most important um, people in my life knew about that, but it's a very personal decision for many people, including me. So I think I made the correct decision um, to let people know when I was fully ready. And that just happened to be when I was ready to walk down the aisle, so to speak, uh, with the person I loved. Well, that's, I'm pleased that you're um, very happy in, in your, your marriage. Has your sexuality, has there ever been a, a conflict with, with your faith? Um, I was spoke to West Streeting some time ago, and he also um, has faith. And he said he came out much earlier than you, but he said there was um, a conflict for him. I think there is for most people who are religious, not just the Christian faith, but other faiths as well. And uh, Judaism and Islam both have particular views on on gay people and homosexuality as well. So it it is dif uh, difficult uh, when you read the traditional scriptures. When you go to some Christian churches within the UK, who still have a very definitive view on the issue. I think it can sometimes be hard uh, for people growing up and reconciling them, their own personality, their own feelings, and um, with what they sometimes perceive to be how they should be in life or what the church sometimes wants people to be. So it is a very, very difficult um, process, I think, for people of faith who are from, from the LGBT community to reconcile the two. Again, it's all part of, of growing up, not just within your Christian faith, um, but more broadly as a person as well. And it's an interesting point within society because we haven't really settled that issue. 
as far as church teaching and um, homosexuality or marriage is concerned. Churches have a varying different uh, views on the issue. And, and of course, you still can't get married as a gay man within a church, which personally I feel is a correct approach. I think legislating for same-sex marriage was the right thing to do. Obviously, varying countries have done it at different points as well. Um, but ultimately, it, we couldn't have a position where the government would force the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church to conduct same-sex marriages because there is a sphere of what the government thinks is appropriate in society but there's also a religious realm as well and I think it's quite natural that churches and different organisations move at their own speed and do what they are, are comfortable with so I would always support their decisions um, to insist on their teachings in this area as well as different areas of public life as well. For those politicians with faith abortion can also uh, be uh, an issue is it for you? Um, abortion is an issue for me. I remember one of the first public speeches I gave was at university uh, to pro-life audience on the issue as well. Um, so obviously people have their own different views on abortion. But my concern is sometimes um, we speak about people's rights in society, um, but sometimes the most vulnerable of all people and human beings within society is sometimes forgotten. And there's nobody more vulnerable than an innocent unborn child as well. And of course, we need to preserve and protect the rights of, of mothers and women. Um, but there's also a second part to this as well. And that's encouraging people to seek the proper advice if they do fall pregnant and maybe they don't want a child. There's other ways of doing things as well. And I think sometimes we don't hear enough about that other side of the argument and the rights of the, of the unborn child. It's something I do feel very strongly about. And not just faith-based as well. I think if I wasn't a Christian, I'd still generally have the same uh, view as many people on the socially conservative right of the Conservative Party and the Republicans in the US um, do. Uh, but again, this is an issue which hasn't been fully resolved either at the moment. Um, the government's making a decision about whether the COVID regulations regarding abortion should lapse or become permanent as well. So again, this is very much a live topic upon which different people have, have different opinions. Um, but the key thing is, whether it be Conservative or Labour, where people are able to speak freely on the issue, because rightly so, it's not a party-wit issue. Um, it's not something where you should always hold the party line. People naturally have their own views on it, and I think they have the right to, to express those as well. Now, you expressed a very controversial um, position in... December, so just a couple of months ago, you said that you would support the death penalty in certain scenarios. Was that something that you just said because you happened to be on television that day, or is that a long thought through, sincerely held view that you have had? Um, it's a latter, Gloria. It's a view I've had for many, many days and many, many years. In fact, I remember having a sixth form debate on the issue when we we're in the sociology A level class. I've always thought it quite bizarre with people who commit the most heinous, evil acts in society, um, as a society or a community, we don't feel it appropriate to reflect our revulsion or disgust at this seriousness of those crimes by meriting the only viable option on the table, which is to show our disappointment, disgust, and that would be to take that person's life away, to feel and to show as a society how awful that crime is. And I think there are a number of different incidents and appalling acts 
appearing in America over the last few years, the killing of Lee Rigby, for example, where the vast majority of people are so revulsed by that crime that there's only one fitting punishment, and that would be the death penalty. And it's something which I know the vast majority of your viewers and my constituents would support as well. And sometimes uh, in politics, you can't say the unthinkable or the unspeakable. And this is certainly one of those points of death penalty where there would be many MPs, predominantly in the Conservative Party, who think the same, but who aren't necessarily prepared to put their head above the power pit and to go on the record. I think the Home Secretary, for example, is one person who has expressed similar views in the past. And I'm not likening it to Brexit because Brexit took its own natural way. I don't think we'll ever have the death penalty restored in the UK for good or for bad. Um, but sometimes in public life, um, when somebody commits an awful act and politicians speak in favour of the death penalty, it can alter the debate. And there will be people listening at home, Gloria, who think, well, thank goodness somebody else has actually expressed my view in public life and who hasn't held to the politically correct version of what people can and cannot say. And if I do nothing in politics, having uh, public debates on these issues and being somebody who's prepared to say the unspeakable, um, that's certainly something I would look to do. You are elected at a time when one of your colleagues, Sir David Amos, is murdered. That came just a few years after the Labour Party MP, Joe Cox, was murdered, both at constituency surgeries. Do you feel safe in this job? Um, yes and no, to tell you the honest truth. So, for example, Gloria, MPs now have um, access to security guards at constituency surgeries. So I've had some of those when I've been at Asda or local supermarket precincts or wherever, and, and rightfully so, because we are in the public um, profile and people hold different views, especially when there are contentious headlines and stories in the press and people want to rightly um, ex expose those and, and give themselves a platform to have those views. Having said that, I think the level of vitriol and opposition MPs face, um, fueled in the large part by social media and some of the press, I think has got to a point where there will be MPs who ask themselves, do I really want to be in this job anymore? Do I want to receive the abuse on social media, in the mailbox? I do, week in, week out. And just to tell you a story which happened on Friday, so only uh, last week, um, I was out knocking in on doors in the constituency like I do two or three times a week. And one gentleman told, came to the door, had the usual full and frank conversation with a few swear words. And normally a few years ago, that would have been it. The door would have been closed. He would have gone inside and that was it. Um, well, that gentleman followed me and my team down the street shouting abuse with a placard. And when we were speaking to people on the doorstep, he got up to members of the public, don't trust these men, don't trust these people. And he was extremely violent and aggressive. And you could tell whether or not he had something going on in his life. Who, who knows? But it clearly wasn't the person who was at ease with himself or indeed society. And in the end, I had to call the police um, to come and uh, have a word with this gentleman because he just not, was not leaving my team and I alone. And we did feel threatened. Um, he was extremely intimidating. And you could have easily have envisaged a scenario where that position or situation would have moved on to become something very, very different. And if I say that's the second time in six months when my team and I have been out canvassing 
and we've had to call the police because somebody has been extremely rude, violent and intimidating and has followed us down the street for a number of 10 or 15 minutes shouting abuse and who hasn't left us alone. That gives you an indication of the level of, uh, of opposition MPs face when we're going about doing our daily jobs. How quickly did the police get to you on both those occasions? Um, the first time, which was September last year, about five or six squad cars came within about 10 minutes. So it was quite an incident. Um, it was about 20 minutes on, on Friday before the police arrived. It's two PCSO officers and uh, a lot can happen in 20 minutes um, for, for good or for bad. So that was a bit concerning. And uh, I do know from speaking to other colleagues, people have encountered this on the doorstep as well at surgeries. It's not just one story from, from one individual MP. And I'd like to think I can handle myself. I grew up in a tough working class environment in Yorkshire. Um, so I don't mind knocking on doors in the most difficult of places within the constituents and having full and frank conversations with people but there becomes a stage when people follow you for 15 minutes and are violent and within six inches of your face shouting abuse when that does become too much uh, and that's my concern going forward not just around social media not just around the highly charged debates um, but we have to strive as a society to have fruitful and difficult uh, conversations politically but to do so in a position where members of the public don't come up to MPs in that manner because nobody deserves that. What should happen to those people that do threaten MPs? Um, well, we've got different um, acts of parliament going through at the moment around online safety. I think there's far more the government need to look at in terms of a political debate. I'm never one for censorship, but there becomes a point when certain people from often anonymised accounts spreading hatred, vile, vile and abuse. I think that does need to be tackled. And I think we have to make it clear and strive to, especially following the tragic events, not just of Joe, but of David as well. And um, the government have to make it clear that MPs need to be properly protected and they need to be able to go about their jobs as public representatives and sometimes say controversial and difficult things without being placed in a threatening position. How could you be best protected finally? Um, uh, well, I think the Speaker and Parliament have done um, everything they reasonably can on this position, uh, on this point. And let's not forget, there's only so much you can do. If you want to be in a safe seat and lock yourself away in an ivory tower and just go to a couple of market events every year, then obviously the, the, less, the risk to you is far less. If you're in a marginal seat like me and you love your community and want to go out and meet people on the doorstep, because when I stand up in the House of Commons, I say, people of Blackpool want this. Well, how do you know if you don't go out and speak to people? So for people like me, who sometimes are in a more difficult and dangerous position than colleagues who don't have to be as proactive, I think we do have to look at some elements of, of security again. And there's going to be difficult questions and debates around the taxpayer and what's reasonable to support that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what price democracy and what price protecting those who are in the public domain and fighting for constituents' rights. So I think that's something which will obviously move on and people have different thoughts on that, but we need to have a debate in Parliament on that issue. Very straight talking. Some people will love what you said. Some people will, you'll create a right Twitter storm by some of the things that you've said. <laughs> that's life as an MP. Indeed. But thank you for your straight talking. Thank, thank you, Scott Benton.
Thanks for listening to the GB News Real Me podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And you can join me every Monday to Thursday from midday live on GB News for The Briefing, your hour-long dose of political analysis. Thank you.